Trash on our cast. People gather around a table and we discuss the films that will never come up in a film studies course. Case in point, M. Night Shyamalan. Always and forever. Uh, and so we're going to be pretty much, right? You don't think any of his things will show up in a film studies course? Nope. Well, you know what? I did actually see one of his films in a gothic literature course. Was once. it The Happening? It was not The Happening. It was The Sixth Sense. Makes sense. Because, uh, you know, Philadelphia yeah. and all that jazz. So, uh, But otherwise, no, does not appear in any way, shape, or form. And so uh, we're going to be uh, talking about that film in just a few minutes. But we need to introduce the disembodied voices. Speaking to your brain, we have a guest host today. Um, sir, to my left, could you introduce yourself? I am Nick Sanford. Hello. <laughs> That's there that. it is. There it is. I think you're going to have to do the work for him on this one. What? <laughs> Nick is a local filmmaker oh, and man. friend of the show and a frequent collaborator on the Good Trash Honor cast, and we are very thrilled to have you, sir. Thank you for having me. It's been, what, two, three years since we've had him on? It's been a while. The Hateful Eight, I yeah, think, I think, was the last episode I did. Back to the movies. Oh, yeah. 2015. So, God, it's been even longer since it's been a proper uh, Good Trash Honor cast yeah. episode. Yeah, and it really has. So uh, here we go. We're doing that thing right now. And let's go ahead and dis- uh, identify the voices that you're more used to perhaps hearing, sir. Uh, across the way from me, can you identify yourself? I am Arthur Gordon, and no hitting. Well, why not? No I- hitting. Okay, fair. Um, moving on, who are you to my right, sir? My name is Dalton Stewart, and the cops will never pull over a man with a huge bong in his car. Why? <laughs> they fear this man. He sees farther than they and will bind them with ancient... Oh, that's a different Fran Kranz movie. I'm sorry. <laughs> Thank you very much. The Village, a Fran Kranz movie. Yes, a, Fran, yes. a Fran Kranz joint. That's what everyone thinks of it as. Every time I see Fran Kranz in anything, it automatically becomes a Fran Kranz movie because I love him so much. There you go. My name is Dustin Sells and Dalton. You run like a boy. Thank you. You're welcome. I, it's literally the first time anyone has ever told me that. <laughs> I was actually lying. I have watched video, and I, it is not true. You just saw a video yeah. of me running earlier. I've yeah. seen it live. It's not, not a thing that actually occurs. So here we are doing this thing that we do. What is the thing that we do, you might ask, if you're tuning in for the very first time? The thing that we do is this. It is analysis. It is not review. And that, therefore, means there might indeed be spoilers. It's a Shyamalan thing, so spoilers are kind of important. If you have been living under a rock and have not seen this film, we will be spoiling it, but not until the last third of the program. What we do before that is our quick thumbs-up, thumbs-down reviews, followed by our gameplay which might involve a mild spoiler of this film or other films in its orbit. I kind of doubt it this week. And then we get down to business, that business being analysis as it always is. So you have then therefore been warned. Without any further ado, let's hear a synopsis of the film from the voice of the cinema, Mr. Arthur Gordon. A series of events tests the beliefs of a small isolated countryside village. Really? Well, I mean, it's a Shyamalan. They they kept it uh, kept it vague. Thanks, IMDb. Yeah. Well, okay. Bye. 
yeah, it's probably a good idea. So let's go ahead and go around the tables, talk quickly just what we like about the movie, trying to avoid spoilers as much as possible. Uh, indeed, though, some of the twisty things might be part of what you like. You can just simply say, I like the twisty things, and then move on. Uh, but I'm going to go to you first, Nick, since you are the guest, and always I let beauty go before age. And so, sir, go ahead and let us know uh, what you think about The Village. You're such a sweetheart. Um, I like The Village. The first time I saw it, uh, opening night, July 30th, 2004, I was not a fan of it. It's a film that has grown for me over the years. Um, I think it's very beautiful and moving and complicated and not perfect, and yet that transcends uh, a lot of the problems that the movie may or may not have. So, yes, I'm, I'm a fan. All right, Nick is pro. Arthur, what do you think about The Village? Uh, pro or con? And tell me why. I am con. Uh, I, it's all right. It's fine. You, you could even say you're con air. I, I could say I'm con air. I just said it because you watched I, uh, it for the first time recently. I am a, uh, my hands are a registered weapon. Uh, so if I kill a man, I will have to go to prison, even if it is self-defense. <laughs> such a dumb fucking setup. Um, <laughs> we'll talk about that some other day, hopefully. Uh, someday. Uh, as far as The Village goes, uh I think it's a story thing. I just uh, – if if the way it's kind of plotted doesn't necessarily work for me. I don't love that. Uh, there are things about the plot and the story that I like. Uh, there's kind of a gear shift moment about halfway through I really enjoy, and I think that's really pulled off well. Uh, Deacon's photography looks great. Um, and the ensemble is fantastic, minus one person. Uh, but everybody here is great. Uh, I, I love everybody. And the cast I didn't appreciate in 2004 – I appreciate this cast uh, quite a bit uh, now. Brendan Gleeson, John Hurt, uh, or William Hurt. Which, which, William. 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 Yeah. Thank yeah. you. Um, and uh, Joaquin Phoenix and uh, Bryce Dallas Howard. Everybody here is just fantastic. Uh, and we get some fun little bits from Frank Kranz and Jesse Eisenberg. And, uh, oh, I can't think of her name. Uh, Kitty from the rest of the development. <laughs> Judy Greer. Judy Greer. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I like a lot of that. Uh, tonally, it kind of feels confused to me. Because uh, we get a lot of deep kind of comedy moments in this, and then it, it's a lot more serious, and I, I don't know that it's balanced super well. Uh, so overall, I'm kind of meh on it, uh, and there are kind of three twists here. There's kind of the gear shift moment in the middle, and then there are two twists at the end, and I think two of those three twists work. And the third one I don't uh, agree with quite as much. Well, Meatloaf says one out of three ain't bad, so two out of three's got to be really good. <laughs> so Arthur said really good. Moving right along. Uh, no, not what I said. Don't <laughs> put the literally words in my the mouth. opposite. Yeah, <laughs> Mr. Dalton Stewart, what do you think about the village? I gotta say, I, I, I like it a lot more than Arthur. That's for sure. Um, I, I'm a big fan of Deacon's photography for sure. Uh, before we started watching it, uh, Nick and I uh, were fortunate enough to get to watch it together, and he made a comment about. Uh, the use of wide photography in the film, and as we we sat down and watched it, that was really what I thought about a lot, in those, especially in those early scenes at the, the very beginning. This isn't a spoiler. The movie opens with Brendan Gleeson burying one of his children, um, and uh, the, the photography in that scene is really great. It just kind of carries throughout that first act, and then as the film goes and the, the stakes get ratcheted up, uh, we start to move into a lot more close-ups in ways I think are really interesting. Uh, for me, though, this movie is Bryce Dallas Howard and Joaquin Phoenix. Uh, I mean, their performances carry this film. And don't get me wrong. I mean, as you mentioned, there's some great performances. Courtney Weaver's really, really good yeah. in her supporting role. Um, Cherry, um, I always forget her last name. Jones. Cherry Jones uh, is really great. Uh, I always love seeing her. Uh, one of my favorite uh, character performers. 
Um, again, the cast is really fantastic from top to bottom, and I think specifically those main performances from Joaquin and Bryce Ellis uh, really carry this film uh, because a lot of the emotion of this film really rests on their shoulders, and I, I think they shoulder it very well. Um, I, I'm with Arthur structurally. There's just some problems, and uh, I'm sure we'll get into this later, but Nick mentioned to me, because um, I asked him, and I knew he would just know more about the production history of the film, about uh, some of the the, the third act. Uh, I guess there was some uh, some rearranging of some story reveals uh, in the edit uh, that I don't think I really like, honestly. Um, just some choices made of when the audience becomes aware of certain information and what order we become aware of it in. I really feel like makes things not work quite so well. Um, and as Arthur alluded to, I've got big problems with Adrian Brody's performance. Um, I always have a pro- uh, problem with uh, any time an actor who does not have an intellectual disability plays a character with an intellectual disability. I've always got an issue with that. Um, and I, I just don't, it, apart from the fact that uh, he goes full R-word, uh, as, uh, as is the, the parlance, apart from that, I just don't think that character choice makes sense for that character. I think yeah. that character makes more sense as somebody who's emotionally disturbed uh, and potentially has, like, some attention deficit stuff. But making that character have some sort of learning disability, I don't I don't think makes quite as much sense as other aspects of that character. And again, we'll, we'll talk more about how that character relates to the, the plot of the film later. Um, but it's a character that we should like a lot more and should wrestle with our feelings with a lot more, I think. And uh, Adrian Brody's just doing, you know, claps and stuff. And it's just like, oh, fuck, this is gross. I don't like this. Um, he had just come off an Oscar, and I think his head was a little up his butthole. Yeah. Absolutely. I think you're absolutely right. I think that's a big part of what it is. I think it's uh, – the, there's probably – I'm curious how the character is written in the script, and I'm, I'm curious how the conversations about that performance went down on the set because it feels like performance. It should have been reeled in a lot more. Uh, but that said, uh, coming back to Bryce Dallas Howard, um, this is, you know, being one of her real big breakout performances. She's amazing. I mean, she is absolutely astonishing uh, in this film. Um, and her and Joaquin Phoenix are really great together in all of their scenes. And uh, every scene at night in the village itself just, like, really rocks me. And I, I think is incredibly well shot. The, the The moments of tension and fear in this film are are really well executed. And uh, I, I think uh, what the film is getting at uh, thematically, which we'll talk about more, I think more than makes up for the, the shortcomings it has in other places. All righty. Well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Dalton Stewart. I like this movie quite a bit. I think it's a, uh, a lot of fun. I, I understand what you guys are saying about the sort of structural problems uh, that are going on in the film in terms of when reveals happen, how twists are um, sort of uh, intimated to the audience. But this is one of those cases where I think the fabula is greater than the shazette, that, that the sum is greater than the parts. I would totally agree with that. You yeah. know, that, that the plotty bits, um, yeah, they could have done them differently, could have done them more effectively. But if you are in and if you are sort of uh, giving yourself over to the film, the sort of end result of what story you are reconstructing in your mind is totally worth that effort. Um, we've already talked about this cast being stacked, and it is so good with great character actors uh, and actresses that I just really, really uh, am impressed with. And so I really enjoy all the performances. I love the dialogue in this movie because they don't go full out Amish with it. They don't go full out uh, – uh, you know, 
even some hello I mean, English. Yeah, yes, yeah, something like that. Yeah. There, there's there's a way in which because this community has been isolated, that there is some sort of linguistic evolution and stasis that has occurred, and the way in which they speak articulates some of that isolation. That it doesn't, it, it you know, slang has been removed and those kinds of things, but also there's been just a certain formality that has been added to it as well. That I think is really really fascinating. It really does create the world for me. Well, there's a lot of uh, poetry to the way people in this town speak. Yeah. Uh, that I that I just find really uh, it, look uh, setting something in uh, the 1800s is a great excuse to uh, you know fancy up the dialogue a little bit right. honestly yeah and so it is not again it's not quite 19th century English but it's an approximation thereof mm-hmm. that I just I really really find moving um I love the costume design I love the color choices I love Roger Deakins photography we've already talked about that the a set bit. design the, the set score is, the score is so good that score is and so all of that sort of emotional content again and I'm, I'm thinking really again that sort of imaginary sensorium that you construct of your own as you watch a film it is just it is really compelling it is really beautiful it's really haunting in the best possible sense of the word and i also like the sort of sociological commentary that's going on with the film as well in terms of the twist and we'll get more to that uh later on so i am a big fan of the movie um obviously nick is a big fan of the movie dalton likes the movie quite a bit and arthur is wrong that is the final uh result <laughs> okay. here um i'll die on my hill <laughs> no I'll, I'll, I'll help you out man because i i agree i think do the that. things that don't work <laughs> i think the things that don't work really take the piss out of something that should work a lot better because I agree, all, especially, like, what, what you're saying as far as the, the world the film constructs and, like, invites you to live in, uh, the sociological implications of the ideas in the film, and, again, the, the, this kind of cl- tight, close-knit community that the film tries to portray. I think it does all that really well, but I am with Arthur. I think the things that don't work really kind of hamper things that should work a lot better. Yeah, and that's and really that is fair if I'm being honest, but I am also being punchy because I can be. So, there you go. <laughs> Those are our thoughts regarding the film at this point. Now, here comes the part of the show where Dalton tells you how you can be part of the conversation with us all via the internet. Hello, listener. I'm very tired, so I'll try to do this quickly. Um, hi. If you want to be part of what we're doing here, uh, we would love that, and it would mean a whole, whole, whole lot to us. Um, if you have... Uh, any desire to get in touch with us, the best way to do that's going to be over on Twitter at good underscore trash. Um, whether you want to ask us about, you know, what's coming up next, if you have ideas or just thoughts, or if you just want to uh, take part in uh, some fun games and polls, uh, Arthur has been killing it over there on the social media lately. Um, so, yeah, just just check it out over there. Uh, that's going to be the easiest way to get a hold of us. Uh, we're on Facebook. Fuck it. You don't need to go over there. It's terrible. It's awful. And honestly, you probably don't even need to go. You don't even need to go to Twitter either. Um, it's, it's all terrible. Uh, the internet's bad. Uh, just send us an email. That's going to be goodtrashgenrecast at gmail dot com. Um, if you have long form thoughts or uh, ideas or opinions, uh, yeah, let us know. Let us know what you're feeling. Uh, let us know what you're thinking. Uh, the easiest way for you to be a part of what we're doing here is just to rate, review, and subscribe to the show over on iTunes or however you put this in your ear, Stitcher Radio, etc. Um, really, the the best thing you can do is just spread the word. Uh, you know, uh, we wouldn't even know where to start on trying to advertise this show, and uh, we probably wouldn't even if we knew how to. It's kind of antithetical to what we what we're trying to do. So. Uh, you know, if there's somebody in your life that you like, it's Mother's Day. If your mom likes movies, tell her about the show. Um, I don't know how your mom's going to feel about all the bad words I say. I, I, I don't think my mom would like it. That's why I don't tell her to listen to the podcast. Uh, but, uh, look, if your mom's into film, maybe she'll dig on this. Or if somebody else in your life uh, is into into film, this might be a good uh, a good place to uh, send them. 
Uh, last but certainly not least, if you want to help us keep the lights on and get yourself access to some extra bonus content, you can do that over on patreon.com forward slash GTM. One more time, that's patreon.com forward slash GTM. Uh, you give us money, uh, that helps us pay the bills, and uh, we give you uh, fun stuff like uh, our discussions of Mute, the Duncan Jones film that dropped on Netflix earlier this year, or uh, our our monthly our monthly Fired Up in Pop Culture, uh, where we just kind of talk about what we're uh, consuming and engaging with out in the world. And we're done. All right. Well, thank you very much for that. Broadcasting directly behind the hedge, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Uh, now it is time to play the game. And we are back with this week's game, our favorite divisive films. That's right, favorite divisive films. That's going to be films that we like that uh, there's kind of a split consensus on. Brought to you by The Village. The Village. People still can't decide whether or not they like this movie. Well, three or four of us did. Uh, Yeah, that's fair. but uh, it was even more divisive upon its initial release. I, That's true. I think the the worm has started to turn, and people are kind of coming around on this film. But I, I know that that was a big talk about uh, the village. I mean, even being like what fourteen when this movie came out, uh, I remember that being a lot of the conversation. And it was that it was. I know you're shaking your head because you were in your mid twenties at that point. Uh, <laughs> but that a lot of the conversation around this film was that it was a disappointment to people who were fans of Signs and Unbreakable in the Sixth Sense. So. Yeah. Uh, um, that's kind of what our focus is going to be, is films that we really are big fans of that uh, there's kind of a mixed consensus and on. And that's why you can't trust the initial critical response. No. Absolutely. So, here we go. I'm going to go to you first, Nick. What is your first selection for favorite divisive film? The Exorcist. It was pretty divisive when it first came out mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. It was uh, nominated for a handful of Academy Awards, including Best Picture, um, made a shit ton of money, um, uh, adjusted for inflation. It's Warner Brothers' highest grossing film and will probably always be. Um, and yeah, and it just really split audiences and critics alike just right down the middle when it came out in uh, late 1973. And that's, yeah, I, I'm still fascinated. I mean, the film itself is fascinating. The reaction to the film when it immediately came out, like I love watching documentaries on people you know running out of it was horrible or like throwing up or whatever you know i mean i don't think it gets much more divisive than that and billy graham was on record for having said that the very cans of celluloid were possessed by the devil well uh, with that film billy's not exactly known for always having great opinions so no no he missed that boat on that one for show so moving on mr arthur gordon what is your number first pick for favorite divisive film i'm gonna go with the always divisive terror it's malik's tree of life yep uh which had a hotly debated uh, appearance at Con uh, the year it came out, and then was uh, ha- forcing people to walk out of theaters uh, for the rest of the year. Forcing theaters to put up signs of, uh, warning people about the movie. Yeah, warning people what kind of movie they were getting into. Yeah. And yeah. So that's a uh, that's I I I, I kind of like movies that do that. I, Me too. Kind of like that. I think it's uh, interesting to see those responses. Uh, but uh, on a personal level, uh, Tree of Life really just kind of. Uh, hit me uh, on, on that emotional level, that spiritual level, and I, I, I love what Malik's doing. I think it's a fascinating study on uh, law and grace and mercy and all those things that uh, go with that and nature and nurture, and uh, I think it's uh, a wonderful film. And uh, So uh, I, I, I'm interested to see where we are in 20 years with that one. 
All righty. Well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Arthur Gordon. What is your number first pick, Mr. Dalton Stewart? My number first pick is going to be a film much like uh, Arthur's pick, The Tree of Life, that uh, really just threw audiences for a loop, and it's last year's Mother, yep. which is how you're supposed to say it, <laughs> directed by Darren Aronofsky. Uh, and, and again, critically, it's kind of a, a divisive film. I think critics have pretty much conceded that the craft of it's really remarkable, but uh, I think the the split is on what the film is saying and what the film is doing. And I, I still wrestle with how much I like that movie. Uh, but I know it, you know, split my gourd along the two fucking hemispheres uh, because it's it's just wild and threw me for a loop. And it is uh, experiential in a way that uh, you don't get very often. I mean, it, it's, it's rare that a film comes along and is just something that washes over you or more accurately crashes into you uh, like a bus. Uh, that that film is just absolutely bonkers in ways that I will never really fully be able to comprehend. Um, and I like it. And again, I, I've got pretty strong opinions about what the film is about and what it means. Like, I, I, I'm not lost in the narrative. I, I get what it's doing. But what it's doing is so caustic and abrasive and weird and, and funny at times uh, that uh, it's it's just all of the things all at once for 90 minutes. Uh, so, yeah, that's going to be my first pick. Mother! Thank you very much for that. Happy Mother's Day. Happy Mother. Mother's Day, uh, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Uh, my first selection is uh, specifically this divisive with a particular film critic, one Mr. Roger Ebert. And this is one of my favorite films uh, from Mr. David Lynch. That is Blue Velvet. I knew it. Yep. And a super nice. interesting, super compelling, super problematic in many ways mm-hmm. film. And that is part of its beauty. That's part of why Ebert didn't like it. Right. And I, I, res- I respect Ebert for always like sticking to the, the convictions of his conscience, even when it... Uh, made it hard for him to see a film's artistic merit. I, I right. do have a lot of respect for that. And, and you know, you could probably go into other places in the uh, Lynch oeuvre and make similar sort of claims. Uh, but of those films, you know, Fire Walk With Me, I think it's just too much of a fan thing, and that's why I still like it, even though it's divisive. But for me, Blue Velvet really is the pick uh, for that. It's a, it's a great movie. It is challenging, and it is looking at that dark, seedy underbelly of American suburbia in a way that I think is really, really powerful. So moving on, number next, Mr. Nick Sanford. What is your number next pick for favorite divisive film? Um, I think I'm going to have to go with Shutter Island, the Martin Scorsese, Leonardo DiCaprio film. When it first came out, um, it was divisive in two ways. Uh, the more obvious one was, is it a good film or not? And it's obviously, incre- you know, the craft of it, the the photography and all that is, you know, I mean, it's delicious. You just eat it up. Um, but a weird part of the split for that movie like you know because i saw it i saw it five times in theaters i think three times opening weekend and god i love you i love you so much and uh every every crowd that i walked out of it that 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 i walked out of it with um they were arguing about if he was actually crazy or not and the film itself makes it very clear that he was crazy and he was you know it's it's pretty you know, it's it's very. I mean, it's on the nose. They spend the last twenty minutes explaining it. <laughs> I don't know how it can be any more clear, and yet people were still arguing, which was frustrating for me as an audience member and someone who really responded to that movie, just because I think it's a beautiful tone poem, basically about uh, about all you know something that many of us have a problem with, which is accountability and the delusions that it can lead to. You know, I mean, it's you know not as as uh, over the top as what the film uh, does, but 
it was crazy to me that people were completely missing the point saying, well, I, I think they were making him crazy. I think they were, what you know, and they just weren't actually looking at the evidence that the film was presenting to them. And in that way, they were all becoming Teddy Daniels in that they just refused to listen to what the film was. And so they, you know, and so they kind of made the point, they made the film's point themselves without actually getting it. And that was just a really interesting, you know, I, that was, it was interesting when that came out. All righty. Well, thank you very much for that selection, Mr. Nick Sanford. Mr. Arthur Gordon, what is your number next pick for favorite device of film? Uh, my next pick is Michael Bay's Pain and Gain, um, a movie I think that threw uh, a lot of people for a loop uh, because it seemed like Bay was trying to kind of flex some cinematic muscles he doesn't normally flex. And I think that kind of just distressed all of the critics uh, everywhere. Um, and also the people in the movie were flexing a lot of muscles as well. Uh, but it's a movie filled with kind of strong performances. And it does seem like it's Bay trying to say something, whether or not that works or comes across as well as it should. Um, it, it, but it's nice to see him try to do something that wasn't just big things blowing up again and again and again. And, and I appreciated that about it. And I, I, I kind of personally enjoy the movie and, and what it's doing. And it's partly due to the cast and, and the story is just really interesting anyway. Um, but yeah, just to see something like that from Michael Bay, um, which was a little quieter uh, than what he normally does and a little different than what he normally does. I, I appreciated that from him. All right. Thank you very much for that selection, Mr. Arthur Gordon. What is your number next pick, Mr. Dalton Stewart? Uh, my next pick is not going to be divisive in this room because it's a, a film I know that the three of us like, and I don't believe uh, Nick has seen it, but uh, it's going to be the Wachowskis' Cloud Atlas, uh, a film that was very expensive and did not make very much money. Um, and uh, audiences didn't really respond to it, and critics were kind of split on how well it worked. And really, man, I, I just think it is a film that is so full of empathy uh, it, it is too sincere and open-hearted for this world. I, I think it is sincere to the point of people just uh, not j just not going with it. I, I think it is it, it is just too much uh, wearing its heart on its sleeve in a way that I think people kind of recoil at a little bit. And again, there, there's some uh, some debate over whether or not you know the race swapping in that film not uh, works in terms of the themes and whether or not how problematic that is, and also how well the effect works. I mean, that that, that was a big part of uh, the talking points around this film. But I think uh, if you can set aside some of the issues that it does have, I, I think you're going to find a film that is you know, really beautiful and empathetic. And, uh, yeah, yes, it is pretty, uh, oh, um, cliche. I, I mean, they're not getting at anything that... Uh, other stories haven't gotten out. Oh, yeah, we're all connected and the universe is great. Well, yes, obviously these are things people have said before, but it takes a lot of work to try and take that big open-hearted idea and turn it into a cohesive narrative. Uh, and I think the Wachowskis and uh, Tom Tickfer, uh, their co-director on that film, I, I think they do it splendidly. And I, I think it really is the the jumping off point for the, 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 the three of them's next collaboration since eight. I mean, it, it really is the, the film that kind of lays the groundwork for that television series. They would go on to do together. And I think when you see something that, that big and beautiful and colorful and that, um, celebratory of life and love, I, I look, man, get with the program and just have a good time and, uh, open up your heart, man, put the love in, but it is an incredibly silly film. It is, but I will try to open up my heart to love, I think, I yeah. guess. I know you, you like you, that movie. You, I do like it a lot. Yeah. You've convinced me not to be closed off. Thank you. The world yeah. moves for love. It, it, for love is, yeah, the thing we bow to in awe. Okay, um, my first... <laughs> 
<laughs> next pick for number next is um, a Gaspar Noé film, Enter the Void, mm, uh, yeah. which is one of those films that are part of the new French extremity. It is uh, extreme in many ways. It is extreme in its uh, various styles being used. It is extreme in terms of its violence. It is extreme in terms of its uh, explicit depictions of sexuality. And it is, I think, a fantastic film. It's a lot of fun um, in that sort of challenging kind of way that films can be fun. Uh, but it is not a movie that everybody loves, and uh, sometimes people think of No Way as uh, something of a uh, uh, spoiled, self-indulgent child, and that may I, be true. I, I was going to say a uh, pornographer with delusions of grandeur. Well, I mean, his film Love is exactly that. Yeah. Not, not a film I really like a whole lot, but I like Enter the Void a ton. And so I recommend it fairly highly. It was on Netflix last I looked, but I don't know. It's been on there for a while. I don't if know if it still is. there now. So there you go, dear listener. Those are the number next picks. The number last picks are coming right down the pike. Mr. Nick Sanford, what's number last for you? Um, I think I'm going to have to go with Interstellar. I'm a big I'm a big Christopher Nolan fan, and his movies have always... The, on, the only good big Christopher Nolan fan I know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, go into that. But, um... <laughs> but, uh... But um, I think it was, you know, it was an interesting part of his film, kind of sort of like The Village a little bit. It was his biggest departure in a lot of ways. Um, you know, whenever it came out, it's the movie that led to Dunkirk uh, and his kind of, you know, wanting to become more of a silent storyteller in a lot of ways, even though, you know, it's three hours of talking in Interstellar more or less. But... It was, um, it, it had a, I mean, it was very, very divisive whenever it came out in November of 2014 amongst, it seemed more film people than general audiences. Generally, the audiences, you know, just, you know, the regular, I don't know if there's a word for it, but the uh, the people who don't read up on film as much um, that saw it seemed to warm up to it a lot more than, you know, just sort of regular film people, be it critics or you know film obsessives exactly and which is weird because the movie kind of seems tailor-made for film obsessives but but um yeah i don't know i just it's it's uh it's again kind of like the village it's it's wonky it's got some big clustery parts um the pieces don't always fit but the sum kind of like any nolan movie the sum is greater than the uh than the parts itself and so um yeah it just it's it's a movie that's that's stuck with me a lot over the years all righty, thank you very much for that, Mr. Nick Sanford. Mr. Arthur Gordon, what is your number last pick for favorite device of film? The Witch House is going to come back up because we're going to talk about Speed Racer. Yeah! Uh, which just celebrated its 10-year anniversary. And uh, if anybody, long-time listeners know, uh, about two years ago or so, we proclaimed that movie to be a masterpiece. At least I did, and Dalton backed me up on that one. Uh, but that show itself uh, showed how divisive uh, that movie was because you know two out of four people who watched it didn't like it. Uh, and so I, I think it had so much going for it. I think it's truly ahead of its time. I, you know, there are some things that the visuals don't hold up quite as well. Uh, but I think the Wachowskis were trying to say a lot, and I think they said it well. And I think that uh, that movie has a lot to offer. I think it's still a fun movie, but it also has a lot of depth. And there's a great family dynamic at play. There's some great action set pieces uh, throughout it. Uh, it's just fun. But, um, yeah, I, I think that's a movie, you know, as, as this week has shown, that I think people will still uh, continue to come back to as as time goes by uh, because there's a lot there for people to dig into. And I don't remember, you know, what the initial kind of divisiveness was about with that movie, if it was just kind of the visuals and this weird, wild, wacky 
uh, car chase movie or what. Yeah, it was but, pretty well written off as just being too big and too loud and too dumb. Yeah. Uh, but I, I think a lot of that works in its favor, and I think it's a, it's a, I think it's a masterpiece. I, I like it a lot. Yeah, it, I, I'm right there with you, Arthur. I, it's, I, I think it's a great film about uh, becoming big studio filmmakers. Yeah, yeah. Great selection, Mr. Arthur Gordon, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Number last from you. Uh, my last pick is going to be Gus Van Sant's Elephant, uh, his film that uh, reckons with uh, Columbine. Um, because back when Elephant came out, that was the only school shooting there was to talk about, and now. It's a whole goddamn thing. Um, Elephant's a film I still don't know how I feel about. Uh, it's it's a film. It's it's one of the first times that I remember, like in my growing as a, a film watcher and as somebody who you know spends a lot of their time talking about cinema. Um, it's the first time that I remember sitting down to watch a movie that I knew was kind of divisive and really not knowing what to make of it. And it's a film I still don't know what to make of. I, I think there's a lot there to think about and to wrestle with and to ponder on um, how successful it is is debatable. How empathetic it is is debatable. I mean, there's just so much going on in that film that I don't like and that I do like. And um, yeah, it's a film I'd, I'd like to revisit, honestly. And uh, a film that I know uh, to this day, people kind of wrestle over how much it works, how dangerous it is, how, you know, is it an irresponsible film? Is, is it a deeply empathetic film? There's just a lot going on there. So, yeah, Gus Van Sant's Elephant, a very, very strange film. All right. Thank you very much for that. I like that movie a lot, too, Dalton. Uh, my number last pick is uh, another Martin Scorsese film. It is Martin Scorsese's Last Temptation of Christ. Yeah. Uh, which was a device for Scorsese fans because it was just too out of step from when he did, has done before, which is something we've talked about already. And also very divisive uh, with the evangelical community as it was uh, imagining uh, Christ in a way that seemed a bit too human for their taste. This Jesus fucks. Uh, well, th he doesn't. I know, not but, literally. Yeah, I mean, but yeah. Look, when people see a thing on a screen, they say that's what happened. Well, no, it's a drink. Anyway. Yeah, and, and so in, anyway, yeah, that all of that sort of consideration, the idea of temptation itself. Nuance is hard for people sometimes. It is really hard. And that is a film that is full of nuance and that really sort of lives and dies by its nuance. And uh, audiences simply just did not give it the chance it deserved. And I like it despite the fact of the New York accent of Car Harvey Keitel, you know, trying to play uh, Jews. Scary, you know, Jesus, we, we gave up everything to fully. I, I, I'm still okay with that. Forget about you, it. Forget about it, Jesus. Uh, uh, oh, man. I, I still like that. You know, uh, Willem Dafoe as Christ is strange, but that, I it, again, it Willem Dafoe as anyone is strange. Accurate statement. Totally fair. It appeals to me very, very much. So there you go, dear listener. Those are our picks for favorite divisive films. We'd love to hear your selections uh, via those magical means of social media already. Fantastic. I'm trying to do a Willem Dafoe face. Sorry. <laughs> it's it's very scary, actually. It's scarier than normal, in fact. And uh, <laughs> he's just not going to quit. Harry. <laughs> So let us know what you think about those kinds of films uh, via those magical means of social media uh, throughout the week, and we will do our best to respond to that. But enough of this foolishness. It is time to get down to business. It's business. It's business time. I know what you're trying to say. You're trying to say it's time for business. It's business time. Ooh. It's That's right, dear listener. It is time for business. That business being, as always, analysis. And we're very, very excited to be talking about The Village, which is a film ripe with analysis. And so uh, I'm going to... Do you want to go ahead and get all the spoilies out of the way real quick just so we can cover them up top? Go ahead. Spoil away. You want me to do it? Uh, do it. 
Okay, so Bruce it, Willis is dead the whole time. Bruce Willis is dead the whole time. Aliens, uh, uh, aliens, water are living in the water. Uh, Bryce Dallas Howard is some sort of mermaid slash water spirit. Um, Bruce the Willis last Airbender man. shows up. Uh, William Hurt, it turns out, was Samuel Jackson the whole time. Now, um, so uh, William Hurt and uh, the rest of the elders of the village, it turns out, uh, were all uh, acquaintances of each other through a, a trauma counseling center in contemporary uh, Philadelphia. And uh, William Hurt, uh, his dad was a billionaire who got murdered and left him a bunch of money. And he said, hey, I got an idea. Let's go set up a wildlife preserve and go start a new life with our families and uh, live as if it's the late 1800s. Um, so we can be away from this crazy, crazy, dangerous, evil world. Um, and let's dress up as monsters every once in a while to keep the kids scared so they don't go in the woods and try to get out and realize that, you know, cars and television are a thing. Um, so basically the Bush administration. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I mean, that's something we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about. This film definitely feels like a reaction to uh, not only 9-11, but the Bush administration at large and the war on terror at large at the time. And I think that's probably a big part of why this film wasn't well received is uh most people were still pretty big fans of the war on terror when it came out um instead of realizing it was a war of terror um boo hey getting getting topical sorry uh look sometimes we do bad things and we think we're doing the right thing and that's just how it goes uh this isn't trying to make anybody feel bad about their choices um but yeah no it's it's a a really political movie in ways that are very apolitical, which I think is interesting. But yeah, that's that's the spoilers. Did, did I cover everything? I think so. No, oh, about halfway through the movie, it becomes Bryce Dallas Howard's film. Yeah, and that's that's a really that's interesting point. Yeah, um, at first it feels like Joaquin Phoenix's movie, and then we realize it was Bryce Bryce Dallas Howard's story all along, which is really cool. And then we follow her, and I like that uh, a lot. yeah, it's it's a great choice. Yeah, uh, absolutely, absolutely. Well, we're going to come back to some of those political things here in just a moment. Uh, I want to talk about the film in a sort of metatextual, paratextual kind of way before we get into that, mm-hmm. because it was quite divisive. And one of the reasons why it was divisive is because it's been suggested that the film was marketed improperly. And I know, Nick, you have some mm-hmm. opinions on that. So tell us yes. what, you're, what, what you're thinking uh, regarding why this film uh, fits well into uh, the Shyamalan filmography and also uh, the marketing issues surrounding it. Well, 2003-2004 was a great time to be an M. Night Shyamalan fan because uh, Sixth Sense, Unbreakable, and Signs made over a billion dollars worldwide combined, which was crazy for original thrillers in the early 2000s, late 90s. Um, And so, of course, after Signs, he became the name that the movie could be sold on, and that's very important to remember uh, you know, for for those who might not, he was the name. It wasn't a Joaquin Phoenix movie. It wasn't, you know, like with Sixth Sense, it was Bruce Willis and Signs. It was Mel Gibson. But by the time Signs hit, we all went to see it for M. Night Shyamalan. In fact, the movie opened with $50 million back in 2004. Adjusted for inflation now, that's close to $80 million. Imagine an original thriller coming out in the summer nowadays and it makes 80 million dollars its opening weekend yeah that's that's a huge opening that's crazy to think about in in modern terms and i think there i think the marketing is partially a reason that it wasn't as well received because his first three films uh said was m night Shyamalan transporting his heart to the audience is saying hey guys supernatural is real magic is real there are great things inside of us. It's all here for a reason. And then the village came along and said, nope, 
adults are screwed up and it's all a farce that the village convinces you that it's not real that it's all you know that it's all uh that it's all made up around us and i think that was a big part of it i think another reason is uh you know like dalton was saying earlier the movie is shot with a lot of wides especially early on in those earlier moments when you're trying desperately to have the audience empathize with your characters and and you just it does it, the movie doesn't really work as well on a first viewing as it might a third or or later on because you just it's it's harder to connect. There's so many characters at the beginning because his three previous films was always centered around one man, and here it seems to be a little bit broader. And and he shot it in a risky way. We talk about the beautiful sumptuous photography of Roger Deakins, but there might be too many wides too early in the movie to connect the audience with the people. I mean, it might also be a a problem in the writing as well for a first time viewing. Now, you know, once you get through all that and you kind of, you know, get to the end and you realize kind of what's going on, you can go back and watch it again and you get, you get more of the nuance and stuff like that. But, but once shit starts ratcheting up halfway through the audience is dealing both with, Hey, this isn't the movie that it was marketed as and B they shot it in a slightly riskier way than they had his last three films. And now that I'm not connected to anyone, even though the stakes are rushing up, I just don't care anymore because I remember I was 15 the summer the movie came out. I, I mean, specifically remember sitting in the theater every time I watched, I saw it, I think four times in the theater, every time I could, Oh, sorry. Every time I could always, there was just this feeling where the audience just lost it. And it was, Right before the reveal of, because there are some weird editing things that happen in the movie, structurally that they changed, which is something else I kind of want to go into. But, um, but yeah, you could, I could always just feel the audience just, 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 boop, I'm out by the time um, they get to that shed. Even before they go in, they know something's up. They know something feels off and it's just not the movie that they thought it was. And so they don't give a shit about the rest of it. They don't care about all the political connotation. And I'm talking general audiences because, you know, and I, and, a, and I think another reason for that disconnect is this is the Shyamalan film that has changed the most during the course of writing the production and then the editing, because he, if you've ever listened to him and I know, especially on this podcast, one of the rules is author's intent be damned. But I think it's interesting to think about, you know, listening to his interviews he's, and watching, you know, documentaries of him on set. He's very, very focused, very disciplined. Storyboards the hell out of his movies, gets the script exactly the way he wants it, hell or high water. And then we're committing to that. And I've got the original script um, in my lap right now which leaked before the movie came out, and I found it on a shady internet site that is, uh, you know, where you would find a gun without a serial number or, you know, a a nuclear warhead that, you know, the Israeli army lost in the 70s or whatever. Nuclear warheads, movie scripts, and other weapons. Yes. Right. Yes. And, um, and, And so... Reading this script that I hold, that I have in my lap, there's a very different ending. And it's a much more cynical ending than what the movie is. Because I think one of the reasons the movie might feel disjointed to some is because morally, I mean, he was already going for something kind of morally confusing in the in the first place, deliberately confusing. That was his deliberate, you know, this is my intention is to make, you know, a, you know something challenging, a, a challenging drama. 
and then about half because the original ending uh ivy comes over the come you know she comes over the wall it's a just a random truck driver that finds her who in the script is detailed as not caucasian so it is to be assumed that Shyamalan, indian you know ethnically indian was going to play that part and it ends with him giving her the medicine helping her back over the over the fence we never see her again we continue with him to a gas station down the street where two older white people sell him gas and then all the information that the Shyamalan character in the finished film gives and the you know yeah. all the exposition it's reappropriated through them in the guise of rumors well we heard that they paid off government you know the government yeah. guys plane routes and all that and we heard that there was this old billionaire that blah 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 and he hears all this and the truck driver gets back into the truck turns around looks at this old couple in this gas station laughing over the fact that they've just ripped him off over this gas that he's paid for this fuel and the script ends with a truck driver saying crazy fucking white people he gets in his truck and drives off and i know that they shot this whole sequence because I remember there was this very specific blog I was following uh, during the production of the film because I was really following it in uh, late 2003 when they were shooting it and there were I mean there's there are very blurry grainy pictures of a camera crew facing a semi with Bryce Dallas Howard because if you look at the finished version she's in front of a green screen whenever she's talking to Kevin on the other side of that wall it's very I mean it's so hard to tell but watching it last night on hd you know streaming from netflix i was like that's why that looks so weird and his reverse looks weird because he's in front of you know he's on this weird set with his green screen extension and i think that halfway through the movie i don't know if it was a studio mandate something that Shyamalan felt himself or some combination of both but they decided to redo the ending make it less cynical make the overall movie less weird and the thing that he that the audience is left with at the end is love can kind of trump all of this morally you know all the shit that these screwed up adults put onto us and i think that made for a disjointed movie because because he is so deliberate and he is so you know intentional in what he does by switching it up you know at some point during the production because i remember in may of 2004 two months before the movie came out it was reported that touchstone spent 10 million dollars to reshoot the ending they had to rebuild the hospital set where all the guy you know and they the actors even look a little bit different if you're really paying attention and and i think that was the and i you know and that's the moment that Shyamalan, because he's always been about um you know, he wants to connect with the audience. He wants to bring them along. You know, one of his quotes, one of my favorite quotes uh, from an interview, he said, I, I never want to make some for me and some for them. I want to always make movies for us. And this was the movie, this was the first time where he kind of screwed that up in a way. I mean, he still wanted the audience. You know, he didn't, no one wants to put a movie out there that's just going to be like, fuck you, you know, and then everyone hates it, which is kind of what happened with this, you know, in a lot of circles. And so I think that had, it, it has a really interesting place in Shyamalan's filmography because he changed his mind halfway through. And in a way he kind of becomes William Hurt who has this very deliberate intention halfway through real, you know, whether he meant for that to be read that way or not to me, you know, watching it last night, I was like, Oh my God, you know, because I've got all this production knowledge of how the movie was shot, you know, just from piecing shit together over the last decade and a half. So I sound like a crazy person right now, but just a little bit, <laughs> but, but, but I, I'm feeling what you're saying. Yeah. But, but I think 
that Shyamalan's uh, relationship to the movie was kind of like William Hurt's relationship to the actual village. Halfway through, he realizes maybe maybe I need to break my own rules, even if it's going to muddy things up, so the right thing can happen. So, you know, love can prevail. Because Shyamalan, as we saw with Lady in the Water, is a bleeding heart. I mean, he really is. He, he you know, he's all about the love thing and about, you know, and he does it sincerely. He's not ironic. He's not, um, I mean, he, you know, he's got some weird humor and, you know, in all of his movies, some of it works, some of it doesn't, but he's, but the one thing he's always been is sincere. And so I think when he changes, when he switches gears in the middle of making a movie from one sincerity, you know, a cynicism from what was happening around him at the time in 2002 and three, when he would have been working on the script and then, you know, putting the finishing touches on it with the Bush administration and all that going on. He, you know, I think he decided, no, I don't want the audience to be left with that. I want them to be left with this. And so that kind of is why a lot of people see it as his downfall. I see it as the, you know, the village as kind of the first movie that sort of led to his downfall or his initial downfall, because he's kind of back with Split, I guess. But I see it as his first step in a new direction of figuring out how to present the audience with these weird things that they're not going to be able to go along with, you know, because Lady in the Water was next. And that was obviously, you know, him, you know, being very personal and really trying to, you know, wrap the audience up. And they just, you know, they rejected that even worse, and they rejected the village. And so I think that's why it took several movies for him to kind of find his his movie balls again, and, and that's why The Village is so interesting to me because of that. All right. Well, thank you for that Sorry. very much. No, I, I appreciate that because that gives us all that sort of production history background, yeah. which is a major part of film analysis. And so I think that's a great place for us uh, to sort of have all of our bearings put together. Mm -hmm. Let's go now and talk about thematic analysis a little bit, though. Um, Dalton, you've already mentioned uh, the sort of relationship to the Bush administration and the war on terror. So let's talk about this film, reading this film, as um, something uh, that is in reflection reflection, dialogue, and discourse with uh, Bush and the war on terror. Well, and again, I, I think it's, it's specifically, it's not, uh, you know, explicitly an anti-war movie or anything like that, but I think it is explicitly an anti-violence film. It, it is a film yeah. that says violence and trauma hurt so bad that they can make you hurt people around you under the guise of protecting them. Getting hurt hurts so, so much. Having somebody taken from you early hurts so badly that it makes you so scared for the other people in your life that you care about, it can cause you to do some really dumb shit. Like, tell them what kind of life they're going to have. And I, I, I think the beauty of this film is that there's this juxtaposition between what Bryce Dallas Howard and Joaquin Phoenix do uh, in their love for each other and what William Hurt and the other elders do in their love for their children. Their love is fundamentally predicated on protection. And through that protection, their expressions of love become acts not of love, but of, of control, of, of, of mastery. Because it stops being about love and starts being about fear. Uh, and that's, that's kind of the, the trick of it, right? I mean, sometimes loving other people hurts so much and is so scary that you stop acting out of love and start acting out of fear. Yeah, fascism is never motivated by how can I be more evil. No. No. No, most fascists don't think they're bad people. That's kind of why radicalization continues, whether it's, you know, fascistic radicalization or uh, anarchistic radicalization, whatever, you know, the, the soup du jour you're going to talk about, whether it's, you know, um, you know, Mussolini's brown shirts or ISIS. I mean, all of these forms of radical violence uh, come out of a place of 
we don't like what is happening to us and the people around us. We don't like it, and we want it to be different. Um, and yeah, th- those movements are always led by people who desire for more power, but the people they attract don't want power. The people they attract just are scared. And that is why control is so intoxicating, is so poisonous, and is so uh, alluring, is because control presents the illusion of safety. But if your safety is built on a lie, how safe are you really? And I and I think that's what's so great about Shyamalan choosing to say, instead of the cynicality of these crazy fucking white people living out in the woods like it's the 1800s or, you know, and or stealing from other people and thinking it's a gas. Um, didn't mean for that pun to happen, but we'll move right past <laughs> that. Um, instead of going with that ending, choosing the ending that says, Sometimes when you love somebody, you will do anything. And there's that beautiful moment on the porch. It's it's my favorite scene of the movie. It, it, it's yeah, it's the, it's the scene of the film when Bryce Dallas Howard says, "Hey, we're gonna dance at our wedding. It's gonna be great." And he's like, "Damn it, lady, quit it. Stop. I'm not ready. I'm scared. You're trying to drag me into this thing. And all yes, we will dance, but I want to lead. Stop it." And it's this really beautiful moment where these two express their love for each other, and he explains to her, "Yeah, I'm not scared." Because it doesn't matter. We're just goofing off. But I get scared when I think something bad might happen to you. And when he gets stabbed by Noah the incel, as Arthur pointed out, uh, when Noah does this act of violence on him, Bryce Dallas Howard, uh, you know, at first is angry, slaps the shit out of Noah, but then realizes I've got to do something or this person I care about is going to die. And it becomes not an act of control, but an act of of self-sacrifice, an act of putting herself in danger, navigating these dense woods with no sight, trying to get to the outside and trying to get medicine. And that is an act of love, not an act of fear. And I think that's what's really interesting in uh, relation to what was going on in the world uh, at large, but also specifically in the United States. Um, We had an administration and a politic that was responding to the fear of the trauma of 9-11. And I, I think it's very interesting f- where this film sits in American history. Absolutely. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Dalton. Now, uh, we got to talk about Noah. Uh, do we have to? Yeah, we, we, we really do. Because, I mean, my, my initial read is simply this. Um, the only way in which violence can enter into this perfect community is if someone is somehow deficient. Mm-hmm. And so it is the deficient person acting out of their deficiency that brings about the violence. And to treat a person with a disability in this way as flawed in such a sense that it becomes even a moral flaw, I find to be really, really problematic. So uh, who wants to say some words about that madness? Adrian Brody and Noah. Nope. Yeah, you just got to leave it's it open table icky. like that, huh? It's yeah. just icky. Like, everything about the presentation, the way the characters play, like, it just leaves a really bad taste in my mouth almost from the get-go. Like, it, it's, it's, I'm not a fan. I, and it's, I don't really know, you know, what to say. I mean, I, I think you're right. I think it's a, a really bad choice to let that, you know, be the way the evil comes back into town is through this person who's not able to. And it's something Dalton and I talked about with Unsane. Uh, earlier this year where something kind of similar plays out with one of the characters who has this kind of mental handicap and uh, she's used uh, in ways that aren't quite right at times. And and so I I feel like it's just a poor choice and I think it just looks bad. Well, and I I agree, Arthur, because, you know, even with the choice of having Noah doing, you know, animal mutilations and stuff, it's very clear that this is supposed to be uh, an emotionally disturbed character, but 
compounding that with that intellectual dis- disability is really troubling in ways that I don't like because, yeah, I, I think the argument is no matter how safe we make each other, no matter how much we remove ourselves from the world, there will always be the pain of somebody you love loving somebody else. And that's the thing that's always going to make violence happen. That's a good point. And saying that there are always going to be people who, for whatever reason, uh, you know, their emotions don't work quite as well as other people, uh, for whatever reason. But having that reason be based in some sort of disability is a problem. I mean, yeah, there are always going to be, uh, let's say Mark David Chapman, because I'm listening to the last podcast on the left series about him. There's always going to be people in the world who, just just don't work good in the heart department and don't understand that you can't force your will on others through violence. But you can't, to, to wrap, I get, I can't, shouldn't say you can't, you can, this movie did, but to do that, to make that choice to wrap a character that has that emotion, emotional disconnect from others, to wrap that up in, you know, like it's what's eating Gilbert Grape is fucked up. And yeah, I'm right there with you, Arthur. It, it, it makes me really dislike stretches of this film sometimes. Yeah. I, I think the one line in the movie that tries to make its point and it doesn't do it very well is when they're, you know, are you not angry? You have no sight. And then, you know, he talks about like, what if Noah then? What if there are medicines that could help him be still and to learn? I think the argument that the movie was tried and failed to make was they've closed themselves off so much that they're limiting themselves with how people, you know, I mean, I think I think a lot of it comes down to because I was I was flipping through the script last night and he isn't written as goofy as he's presented in the movie. I think they just got a cocky Oscar winner, hot off an Oscar who yeah. you can't say no to, who's just going to do yeah. what he was going to do and turned it into Simple Jack and and that yeah they should have fired his ass and it and yeah. it it screws up the movie. I mean, ultimately it is Shyamalan's fault, but yeah. I think the argument it was trying to make and failed was we failed him by not giving him proper medical, you know, medical assistance, actual medicine, you know, doctors, all that. And But, yeah, it, it, it just doesn't. And, and it's a fair point, you know, because it comes back to the idea of, like, we can control everything. We can control all the variables and keep everyone safe. Well, no, you can't. You might yeah. need somebody from the outside who's going to be a specialist who can, uh, you know, you're just a college history professor. You're yeah. not prepared to, you know teach special education yeah um but again tying that with that act of violence uh, and with that you know that possessive act of violence is is really troubling and i I think undercuts some of the the movie's message about the ways in which violence is an inherent part of human society yeah i don't feel like the film ever fully reckons with or comes back to that i feel like it just kind of glosses over then it kills noah yeah, yeah. I feel like that tries to make it right. I think you're absolutely right, Arthur. That's I, do, I hadn't even thought about that yet, but you're right. That becomes an even bigger problem is then the film just kills Noah and says, well, everything's okay now. Yeah, yeah the solution is to... He'll be the martyr that yeah. saves the sounds ideology. Which kind of makes the elder seem even more fucked up at the end when they're yeah. like, we're going to use him to perpetuate this lie and this myth to yeah. further yeah. delude our children. And that is a choice I actually do like. Now, the, again, the, the ways in which uh, Noah's, uh, you know, murdered... Um, through an, a- an accident for, for all intents yeah. and purposes. Yeah. I, that, that doesn't work just because of his characterization. But I do like the choice to have William Hurt and Brendan Gleeson and Cherry, you know, and every, at all, have at all the all. elders go, we're going to double down now. Yeah. Instead of learning our lesson, yeah. we're going to double down. Yeah. And the only thing that makes it, but at the very least, these two crazy kids got together. And I, I think it is a very, it's not a cynical ending, but it is a, a very bleak ending. Um, in some ways, yeah, it's 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 a pretty it's a long darkness moment. Well, let, let's, yeah, let, absolutely. Let's go hard.
starting to paint there on the theory now uh, about this idea of stories, specifically about the idea of meta narratives. And uh, one thing I'm thinking about is a particular uh, long essay, short book, depending on how you look at it, uh, John Francois uh, Leotard's uh, The Postmodern Condition, which suggests that the fundamental trait of the postmodern condition to be a person who is postmodern is to be a person who is deeply suspicious of the meta narrative. And that what we live in is an era in which meta narratives of Christianity, meta narratives of Marxism, meta narratives of uh, psychoanalysis, or whatever, are all suspect. Right, and in this movie we have a meta narrative. This is there is a thing in the woods. It will get you. Our story is that we have settled in this place, and uh, they they tell these set of stories, these set of fables, which are based on some things they've encountered. Uh, William Hurt talks about how there was there were legends, something like a Jersey Devil kind of yeah. thing going on in the woods. Whatever it happened, yeah. to a Philly Devil. Yeah, the Philly Devil uh, sounds like a boxer uh, to me. Oh man, it does. <laughs> yeah, but uh, whatever it was, and, and that they're using that story in order to shape a community, right? And that is, I think, something that's really, really interesting. First of all, I, I think that one of the problems of postmodernism is that all of the skepticism is great. I like the skepticism against the Marxist meta narrative that can you reduce everything to class? No, you really can't. The the, the psychoanalytical uh, meta narrative can you reduce everything to desire and the frustration of desire? Well, no, you can't quite do that either. Can you reduce everything to uh, the existence of God and the relationship to God, sin problems and guilt and that kind of stuff in the Christian narrative? No, you really can't do that either. That there is there is a way in which those meta narratives, if they uh, have that meta sense of shaping the entirety of the life, that they don't do enough. But yet and still human beings do need stories in order to shape life if they're going to shape life as communities that we do need to tell stories to one another and that we do need to reform and reshape and remold those stories and we might take bits and pieces here and there but there's got to be not just the deconstruction which is what's endemic to postmodernism but there also has to be subsequent construction right and that um I, I do think it is a story, and it is uh, a made-up thing, but it is I think it's a useful thing to say this is who we are. This is what we're about. Now, I think the postmodern approach to it is to say, no, there's not a thing in the woods, but we talk about the thing in the woods because there is a thing beyond these woods, and it is monstrous. And we don't want any part of it. And to be part of this community, we avoid that. And we put together these rituals and these practices. We avoid these colors. We do these things. Not because they themselves are the magic that keeps the monster away, but they're the way in which they bind us together as a community so that we can keep the capital M monsters away. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, absolutely. It's, it's the ways in which, you know, the stories we tell each other, the ways in which we we build our narratives around each other. Um, ritual often exists only to, you know, give structure, right? And uh, I, I get exactly what you're saying. It doesn't matter if there's monsters. It, what matters is that they have created a lie uh, um, that at the same time, while being a, a, a potentially a very ethically dicey lie, um, it's a lie that binds people together and builds closeness. And, uh, you know, look, that wedding looks adorable. It looks like a hoot. Absolutely. It looks like a great time. And that wedding exists because it is predicated upon a lie. Yeah. Well, and here's the thing. What is what is the, what is the nature of truth? Now, this is another one of those bits of postmodern skepticism. Yeah. And uh, this is where my postmodernism really begins to show here because I don't think a thing has to have happened to be true. 
I don't think a story has to be based in history for it to be true. I think that's the least interesting thing about those kinds of stories is whether or not it happened. What's more interesting about a story is how it binds together and creates that new community. The reaction. I, yeah, the reaction. And, and that, that, that's my approach to Christianity. I, I, am, I don't th- – those you know, sort of conversations – okay, here, here's, here's my Sunday school example, all right? Jonah and the whale. I am totally disinterested in whether or not a human being can survive in the belly of a whale for three days, right? I don't give a rip about that. But I am interested in the idea of a culture becoming so xenophobic that they fail to engage the nations around them. And if they f- refuse to do that, they'll be swallowed up in exile, which is what happened historically um, before the book of Jonah was written, and puked up on a beach only a portion of what they used to be. That is a story that is true whether or not it ever happened. I don't need the miracle for the story to work, right? And we don't need the monsters to be real for that story to work. That's where the power really plays in is that we say what we see in here is something that's true. There's something true to, uh, you know, uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. There's something true to E.T. There's something true to what we see in the film Signs. And that's what matters. No, were there aliens in water? No, that's not what matters. What matters is that this is how we can bind ourselves as human beings and live together well in a society. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I mean, film, films are the, the the modern campfire stories, right? Just, yeah, yeah. just the way we, we, you know, came together around campfires and, you know, painted pictures in caves. This is why we make movies is because it, it is a way in which we say, look, there is no monomyth anymore. There can't be because if we're going to have a truly open and inclusive and diverse society. Yeah, pluralism just doesn't work that way. Yeah. No, it's not. But we have to find a way to try and piece together and stitch together everyone's expression of who they are and, and find a way that says, this is what we got. This is, this is what we got, and this is how we express the idea that we're all deeply fucking scared that somebody's going to kill our kids. Mm-hmm. And this is how we, we tell the story, right? Yeah, I think that's what you were saying, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I th- totally feel that, absolutely. And, and, and that, I think, is really, really powerful. But what, what needs to happen is the idea that this is story. That's what we're dealing with. We're dealing with story in order to shape a life and, and to sort of remove ourselves. That's how you get past the postmodern sort of skepticism that's only deconstruction is that we get past that movement and say, okay, now how can we be constructed with these stories, recognizing the condition in which they're received, recognizing you know, the, 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 the sort of textual basis, redaction criticism, recognizing the problems that we might find, that there are gaps in Marxism, that there are gaps in Christianity that are not addressed, there are gaps in psychoanalysis that are not addressed, but how can we still use those things? things to help us to understand who we are, where we are, and live better as human beings. That's that's powerful and that's useful. And it's good to tell each other lies because they're true sometimes. And that's my point. It's that aesthetic truth we were talking about just a few weeks ago. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Aesthetic truth. So, well, there you go, dear listener. We've had a, a fascinating conversation. Uh, so far, is there anything burning in anybody's minds we need to address before we move on, this seems that there is not. The consensus of shaking heads uh, addresses that. So we move on to the point of the show. We render a verdict, shelf or trash, Elser instead. I'm going to go to you first, Nick. What do you say about the village, shelf or trash? I'm going to be so surprised, I'm sure. Else or instead? Um, I've got three films that I think would uh, go interestingly with this. Wait, are you shelving it or trashing it first? Shelf. He said. Yeah. Oh, he just went ahead and said for you. Yes, I misunderstood yeah. what he was saying. Yeah. Um. Yeah. No, it's definitely shelf for me. It's a movie that's evolved. That I mean, has I've kind of had a uh, an evolving relationship with over the years that it's come out. You know, because the first night it came out, I didn't understand it at all, and it took you know 
a little bit of maturing and uh, experience in the real world. Um, so yeah, it's definitely shelf for me. It's as problematic as as it is in a lot of ways, both the construction of the narrative and Adrian Brody's. I don't want to call it a performance, but you know his his <laughs> his, his, his his Kabuki experiment. Um, <laughs> Uh, you know, as much as that kind of, you know, you know, can kind of put a, uh, on it, uh, I find the rest of it powerful enough that it, you know, I mean, it kind of, in a lot of ways, it kind of got me through some dark times and a lot of my, you know, and when I was younger about, you know, just, just seeing it as an example of pure love in a world of, you know, just corruption and screwed upness, um, you know, has always spoken to me. Uh, three else's, uh, Psycho, because Shyamalan is a child of Hitchcock, and in Psycho there is a uh, stabbing incident that changes the yep. whole structure of the movie. Uh, the Shining, because adjusted for inflation, it's it sold about the same amount of tickets as The Village did. Came out in the summer, opened huge, nosedived, had a very divisive reaction, uh, and kind of over the next decade and a half started building its stature as something bigger. And The Shining is an example of something that is not perfect. Um, there's one scene in the bathroom where they just rattle off the N-word about six times in a row, and it is so unnecessary. But the film itself, The Shining, is just so powerful and so human in a lot of ways that it's wonkier elements you can forgive or even enjoy for what they are, kind of like The Village for me. Uh, last one is Titanic. It's a visually splendid period romance amongst all this socially weird stuff where a hot redhead named after a plant must go save the, her true love in the second half of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> that is fantastic. Those are great picks. <laughs> Fun <laughs> connective tissue there. <laughs> all right. Mr. Arthur Gordon, what do you say? Shelf or trash, else or instead? I'm going to trash it, but ask oh, me again man. in 10 years because film criticism is fluid and time and experience change everything. Uh, instead of this, I say you watch The Vitch. Uh, Double V's uh, to spell that. Uh, I say watch Hot Fuzz as well for the greater good. The greater good. And then I would pair it with uh, The Truman Show and Dark City uh, and, and have yourself a good time with all those films. All right. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Arthur Gordon. What do you say, Dalton Stewart? Shell for Trash, Elser instead. I'm going to go ahead and kind of cop out and land in the middle. Uh, it's not essential viewing. It's really not. Uh, I think there are other films that, that are doing this kind of same thing and um, – cleaner ways i will say if you like Shyamalan, though it probably is essential viewing and as if you consider yourself a fan it, it is absolutely shelfable uh because i think it's worth you know if, if you're gonna put something like unbreakable or the sixth sense up in your you know top even 50 films that you love you should probably really reckon with this film because i think there's a lot there to like and i, I don't think it should be completely written off um, to pair with it some interesting options. I was actually also going to say The Vivitch, Arthur, just, again, not only for the the period horror, but also I think there's a lot of interesting camera work that the, is similar. Yeah. Um, but since you tagged that, uh, I'm going to call an audible and say uh, Avengers Infinity War, uh, just talking about meta-narratives and talking about, uh, look, let's, uh, let's talk about things that are kind of pointless and flawed, and yet form a narrative that says... No, um, th no, we, we will not sacrifice one life to save everyone. We will save everyone's lives because that is the kind of people that we should be and should try to be is say that everybody matters and everybody has worth and nobody is more important than anybody else. Um, things like that. Uh, 
so that that's my audible there. Um, what else uh, should you enjoy with this? I had to reopen my notes because I forgot. Now I remember. Uh, another period horror film that I really like, uh, The Others, starring Nicole Kidman, uh, a horror film yep. about parental anxiety, uh, about, uh, you know, fun gothic mansions and interiors and uh, and soft lighting. And, and another film that reared its head in that American gothic class I took. So I can see call. why. Yeah, uh, it's a film I really, really like. And I actually probably like a little bit more than The Village, but I think they are very interesting companion pieces. Um, and if you want to talk about big blockbuster horror films, uh, let's go ahead and talk about this year's John Krasinski's A Quiet Place. Um, I normally try to not have two new releases uh, for my else's, but I decided to call an audible since you said The Witch. But uh, I think The Quiet Place is operating in a lot of the same spaces that the uh, the village is. So I think that would be an interesting pairing as well. Outstanding. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Dalton Stewart. I am also saying shelf, and I'm putting together a quadrilogy of films uh, that would be an excellent pairing for this sort of, uh, I would, what would say, a, uh, a lectured afternoon day. You know, we're all day kind of we're going to talk about story and forming of communities. Consider it a, uh, a lesson in political activism or consider it like the most perverse uh, Bible conference you've ever been to that is sort of the uh, image i have in mind and the one of the films is the vavitch uh, so that's three out of four for that i think it's a perfect pair uh with this particular film i think it's it works really really well also the movie watership down which is all about finding narratives that actually work then you watch the village and then lastly you watch uh david cronenberg's a history of violence and you start talking about how personal transformation can be shaped in terms of story and how to work that together as a community when you find out that some of the narrative has holes and gaps and pieces and reconstruct the family um that's where it becomes a very very perverse bible study um because if you've seen that movie it ain't for church uh but that's all right it's also very very good stuff so those are my recommends dear listener your syllabus just got way longer and uh, that's not a bad thing so i hear we're gonna do one more show at least one more. Is, is that the rumor so um what are we gonna do for this next show well, we have a very special Patreon-sponsored episode from our good friend Brigham Cole. And uh, so it is going to be his choice, and he has decided to choose uh, the third part of the Apocalypse Trilogy, which we have not done, and that is John Carpenter's The Prince of Darkness. Nice. I'm excited to be taking a look at this. I love me some Lovecraft, and so it's going to be good times for all of us. You're going you're gonna to want to watch that movie. You're going to watch this village. You're going to want to have a conversation with somebody you care about because that's what makes this so worthwhile. You keep watching. We'll keep talking, and we'll see you all next time. Hi, and thanks for tuning in to the Good Trash Genrecast, a product of Good Trash Media. For more Good Trash content, go over to GoodTrashMedia.com. Our intro is a uh, custom piece from Aaron Rodgers, and our outro is Superstition by Stevie Wonder. Very superstition.